Oh, hello. Welcome to Trained Body and Mind, a podcast exploring the cutting edge of holistic fitness. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beyer. Each episode, I connect with the world's leading experts and athletes to talk about mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, and sleep, what we like to call the five facets of fitness. That last facet, sleep, is understandably a cornerstone of rest and recovery for many of us. But in this episode of Trained, we talk with a doctor who says true rest and recovery is about so much more than just sleep. I think you have to understand that rest is not simply about cessation. It actually includes those restorative practices that we do to help rejuvenate our body and to help it get back to its optimal state. Because that's really what rest is about. Rest is about restoration, restoring the parts of us that get depleted. That's Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith, an internal medicine physician and author of the book Sacred Rest, a book many people often refer to as the seven types of rest. And in this episode, we take a deep dive into each of those and explore how different types of rest can enhance your fitness and your quality of life. So I read your book on Friday, and my favorite line was on page five, and you said, I'm too busy to write this book, and you're probably too busy to read it. (laughs) And it made me laugh because I was cramming it between meetings, and I was trying to prep for our conversation and the irony of reading about resting while the reading was working against the resting was not lost on me. And I appreciated Mm -hmm. that you acknowledged that while you were writing about the resting, which I'm sure was quite a process of acknowledging that and and doing the book with the subject matter there. Did you experience that irony during that process? I did because that's the thing. I think for a lot of us, uh, we're just doers. We are high achievers. We like to get stuff done. We have a great work ethic and rest doesn't fall into that equation. And so I understand the value of rest, but there's still this tension. There's always this tension of being who I am, who is someone who likes to do work and understanding that there's a place for rest. So no, it was not lost on me while writing that book. I'm like, okay, I am I am busy in the research and the writing, and I still have to appreciate the need for rest. I agree. I co-sign on that. So tell me a little bit about your medical career. I do what some call traditional internal medicine. It's fallen a little bit out of favor over the past 10 years just because it is very high stress. Traditional medicine means that I have a practice, an office-based practice, but I also see my patients and follow them whenever they go in the hospital. So if they go into the emergency room, I show up there to help admit them. If they're in the ICU, I'm there helping to innovate them. I'm always working to some degree. I love the complexity of it. It's why I went into internal medicine in the first place. So I don't really want to get away from what made me go into the profession, even if it has a tendency to be very hard and taxing. Well, and I'm sure your patients appreciate that constant too. You know, you mentioned getting admitted to the emergency room, like that could be really scary and overwhelming and having a familiar face there is probably super comforting. So whenever I interview doctors who are also authors, I'm always curious how you found the time to do both, especially the way you describe the career of being an internist. How did your medical career lead you to write your book, Sacred Rest? I burned out is the simple answer. So (laughs) at the time that the book was written or right before it was written, I was going through a phase of my internal medicine where I was extremely active and really did not see any value in resting or stopping. That wasn't even a concept that was important to me whatsoever. Honestly, at the time, to me, rest was not necessary. I felt like if I got adequate sleep, then I should be fine. And so there was a season 
where I really went deep on getting high quality sleep. I actually tested my sleep cycle long before there, there were gadgets to be able to do that easily, but actually in a sleep lab, tested my own sleep cycle to see how deep was I getting into sleep. I made a point of getting eight hours, documented that it was the highest quality sleep that I could possibly get, and I woke up every day still exhausted. And that's when it really started to dawn on me, there is something missing here. If I'm getting sleep that everything is telling me is supposed to be the highest quality I could possibly get, and I'm still tired every morning when I wake up, then there's some part of me that is fatigued, and I need to identify what is fatigued, what is depleted, to be able to get back to a place where I feel my best. So within your book, you unpack what you call the seven types of rest. And before we dive into what each of those are, I just want to take a step back and make sure that we all have a really super clear understanding of what you mean by rest, because you said, you know, you initially thought, I need more sleep, I need more hours of sleep, and that really wasn't working. So I think it might be more surprising to first talk about what rest is not. Yes, I think when we look at rest, we have to first decide what is rest. Because I think too often, most of us, when we think about rest, we are only thinking about cessation activities. We're thinking about sleeping. We're thinking about napping. We're thinking about laying around the couch on the weekend doing nothing. And although those can be a part of rest, I think you have to understand that rest is not simply about cessation. It actually includes those restorative practices that we do to help rejuvenate our body and to help it get back to its optimal state, because that's really what rest is about. Rest is about restoration, restoring the parts of us that get depleted, the parts of us that get drained when we're doing whatever those different activities that are a part of our life. Well, I think if you were to say to most people, you need more rest, they would think, okay, well, I need to sleep more, just like you did in the beginning of your journey with it. Why do you think that we are so off when it comes to understanding what true rest is? Because there's been such a focus on sleep, and sleep is important, and the statistics show two-thirds of the population are sleep-deprived. But I think where we get a true disconnect is that we use the word sleep and rest interchangeably as if they are exactly the same thing, as if by saying I'm going to get sleep, that I'm getting all of the restoration that I need or any of the cessation activities. I'm going to get everything that I need in the rest bucket And that's going to make me feel refreshed and restored and rejuvenated and energized. And it's just not true. I think that is the mindset shift that most people have to make to be able to truly disassociate sleep and rest from being the same thing. And as we go into the seven types of rest, we'll actually see how sleep is just one type of physical rest, with physical rest actually having two components. And, you know, if you put all of your eggs in the sleep basket, you're in essence omitting all of the other types of rest that are available to you. Yeah, and we definitely want to get into that physical rest bucket for sure. So how did you land the seven types of rest? Were there any scientific method involved in coming up with your formula for restedness? Is that a word? Restfulness? Restfulness, right? Yeah, restfulness. So there was, and it was really, it was really grassroots, to be honest with you. So the first question I started asking was, what kind of tired am I? And looking at where was I expending energy in that day and what felt fatigued? The list probably had like 15, 20 things when I first started. And as I started working through that list of different types of fatigue, I started sharing it as well with different patients. 
Now, I'm in a large medical practice with over 10 physicians, so there were lots of patients that were coming in. And so I had a large mix of people that I was able to present these ideas to and get their feedback on where they were feeling fatigued. And what I saw was there were certain types of rest that seemed to cross all barriers. It didn't matter if the person was well-educated or had never gone to college. It didn't matter if the person was in a million-dollar house or living in the projects. There were certain ones that were universal. It crossed all socioeconomic barriers. It crossed all racial and cultural barriers. Those were the seven that I stuck with because I didn't want it to be that, well, this is something that only the affluent deal with or this is something only the people who are in poverty deal with. Because there are other stressors, obviously, we know that are out there that need restorative practices. But these were seven that were consistent across the board. Got it. And then after that was kind of identified, that's when you know, the rest quiz and some of these other things came into play to try to see out of even those seven, are there some that are more prevalent than others? So I want you to put your lab coat on for a second and just tell us how you might diagnose someone with a rest deficit? What are the symptoms that you're looking out for? I basically walk someone through the process of really kind of some self-awareness and self-reflection on where are you spending that energy? Answering that question, what kind of fatigue are you? Where is it that you're draining your energy throughout the day? What are the things in your environment, in your lifestyle that may be predisposing you to having a rest deficit? The rest quiz at restquiz.com is probably the quickest, most concise way. But when I'm sitting down with a patient, what I start with is I start asking them to describe their day to me. Describe to me, when you get into work, do you feel energized when you first walk in the door? If not, what happened before you got there that you feel like may have been draining? Did you spend the morning chasing after your kids and, you know, picking up cereal off the floor or what happened throughout the day, maybe that you got to work energized, but then halfway through, all of a sudden now you're exhausted. You know, what happened in those situations? Starting to really look at energy and looking at how they feel after certain energy exchanges, because that is really at the core of it. I think most of us don't really look at our days and the concept of everything we do requires some level of energy. And so energy has to be replenished in some way for it to be able to stay at its highest level. Well, and are you finding that people are coming to you with the self-awareness that they have rest deficits? Or are they thinking, there's something really wrong with me, I might need a pill, I don't know what's happening, and you're helping them connect those dots? Or is it just kind of a mix? I would probably say majority of people who come to me are coming with the idea of there is something wrong with my thyroid, my adrenals, something in my body is off and you need to figure it out. Give me a pill. Give me whatever it is to fix it. That is the most common thing that I hear. Thyroid being the number one thing that I hear more than anything else. We test these things and they're perfectly normal. (laughs) Absolutely no abnormalities we can find whatsoever. You know, it's most people don't want to hear that there's a lifestyle change that has to occur. Same with, you know, somebody comes in and their blood pressure is high or they're pre-diabetic. Nobody wants to hear I'm taking away your donuts. Mm -hmm. It's not a popular conversation to have to tell people there's a lifestyle change that actually needs to occur for you to feel the way that you want to feel. 
But that's the reality of it oftentimes. It's not a quick fix with a pill. Not to say that I don't think there are times that, you know, a sleep aid might be beneficial or some of these different things. But for the most part, a lot of times there's a change that has to happen in how we're doing things and how we're more proactive in being aware of what we need. Well, I think Dr. Google probably makes it a little bit more complicated too. People come to you with, oh, "Oh, I know, I figured it out. I just need you to like write the prescription. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's that's always difficult for sure. Yeah. So what are the risks then, short-term and long-term, that can be associated with being in a rest deficit? Well, it depends on what type of rest deficit. So for somebody who has a physical rest deficit, specifically for athletes, this is when someone has those tight, tense muscles that are going to be more likely to have some type of injury. You know, I think it's, it's you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when you're thinking I know that. about, it, it's really interesting because, um, you know, I, I'm the kind of person who I love going on a leisure walk, throw me in a 5K, cool, no problem. I don't have to train to do three miles. You know, I'm good with that. However, my husband is an ultramarathon on a triathlete. So my training schedule, which is, oh, you know, I'm a weekend warrior. I can go. (laughs) I'm like, oh, there's a 5K. Let's sign up. He's like, oh, there's a 100K. Let me sign up. It's it's not the same thing. (laughs) And so when I look at his schedule, and I'll mention, you know, as you can imagine, someone who works out at that level of intensity, this is supposed to be a rest day. He will say things like, yeah, but I feel so much better when I'm moving. So I'm just going to keep moving. I have to make him understand, I don't have a problem with you moving because passive physical rest is stopping. Active physical rest are those things like yoga or stretching or going for a run with your wife who's way slower than you are, (laughs) which for him is restorative. Because it's allowing the body circulation, the lymphatics, all of those systems to work at a lesser intensity. So you're still getting healing without being still. Yeah, it's it was really interesting for me to consider how these types of rests work together and maybe work against each other. And I think what you just said is, is making me think of the way that I sort of balance mental and physical rest. So my mental rest, my way of decluttering is my exercise. So every morning... I do it to clear my mind. It gives me energy for my day. And I've learned through my many years of experimenting with different types of movement, the exercise that does that best for me is CrossFit. And so if I look at this week, for example, alone, I've gone to CrossFit Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning. I've got a little pinch in my back. I've got, you know, my range of motion in my neck is not as great as it should be. So what's working for my mental rest is working against my physical rest and trying to figure out that balance. And I think I'm not the type of person who wants to be told like a rest day is a do nothing day. So I appreciate how your seven types of rest and what you recommend for people is more active than it is passive. And I think that that probably helps people balance them. But is it unusual for the types of rest to work against each other? No, I think they oftentimes do because I think that's part of why it's been so difficult for most of us. Because if you're only thinking about rest as cessation activities, it's kind of stopping to some degree. How can you stop and do at the same time? However, the seven types of rest usually do work not in tandem, but in conjunction with each other. So you might be doing something physical. We'll get these messages from women that'll say, my husband needs to rest and he refused to rest. He's out there chopping wood and he says he's resting. Well, if he sits at a desk job all day, his body's not overworked. It's his mind that's overworked. And chopping wood is a repetitive process similar to running or swimming and a lot of different activities we do. And so during that repetitive process, he can let his mind go blank. 
and just do that repetition, which being able to clear that space is a type of mindfulness, kind of getting to that quiet head space. And so physically, the body's being taxed, but mentally, the body's being active. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about that, particularly with joggers or bikers and um, cyclists and you know runners and all the different things people like to do outside, when we're thinking about creative rest, creative rest is the rest we experience when we allow ourselves to appreciate beauty in whatever form and let it kind of inspire and motivate and uplift us. So if you're someone who gets inspired, let's say by being outside or at the beach or listening to music or something of that nature, then you could be outside on a jog and you might not need mental rest. You may be more benefited from taking in your surroundings. You may actually be more restored in those moments, not because you're actually being mindful and kind of clearing your headspace, but you're letting yourself consume the creative beauty around you and getting the creative rest of being inspired by that environment. When we come back from the break, Dr. Dalton Smith takes us deeper into each of the seven types of rest including realistic ways to incorporate them into our daily lives to prevent burnout and to get the most out of our workouts. So I think we've actually mentioned maybe five, of the types of rest at this point. I think we've kind of teased them enough. Let's go through them one at a time. I would love if you could briefly explain each type of rest and maybe along with some of the strategies that you find the most useful for incorporating that rest into our daily lives. And you can go in whatever order you want. I know you're a pro at this. I'll help you keep track of them if we lose okay. place. <laughs> Yeah, so I'll name all seven just for those that are like me who are like in a retentive. It's like, what are there seven? Give it to me. So there's physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, social, sensory, and creative. Those are the seven types of rest. And so physical, as we discussed, has two components. You have the passive, which are sleeping and napping. Then you have the active, which are all those things that actually help improve your body circulation, your lymphatics, your muscle integrity, and flexibility. So, you know, anything from, honestly, anything from the body ergonomics of the workstation you're at can be part of physical rest, being aware of where your screens are for your computers and your how your wrist is positioned with your laptop or your device, to things like, as we mentioned, yoga and stretching and physical therapy and all those other different things that actually help the body to restore. Mental rest is the rest we experience when we allow our headspace to focus concentrate or clear out. Most of us spend a lot of time with mental unrest. And this is something if you're the person who you lay down at night and you're exhausted, you want to go to sleep, but your head won't shut up. You're thinking all the thoughts. You're running through your to-do list for the next day. You're checking off your workout information for the coming up day, your schedule at your job, what your kids need to do. You're running through all of these different things, but you can't get your head to kind of go to that quiet zone. A simple strategy that many people use for that is something called 
brain dumping, which is basically just having a piece of paper, notepad, whatever it is, to jot down whatever you're ruminating through your head. Because rumination tells the brain that this is something you want to hold on to, even at the expense of you sleeping. So if you're ruminating over something, it's going to be very difficult to get into the deeper levels of non-REM sleep because your headspace is going to be holding on to this information. A quick brain dump is a simple way of doing that. Mm-hmm. Spiritual rest is different for each person, but at the very core of it is that need we all have to feel as if we belong, as if our life has purpose, as if we are giving back to the greater good. Some people experience that in faith-based religious-type systems. Other people experience that in different organizations or communities they may be involved with. And so everyone has to kind of decipher themselves, but it's still a need we all have when we are doing that, when we feel like our life has purpose, there's a restorative process that happens in that we feel like we are part of something bigger than ourselves, that we are contributing to to the good that's in the world. Emotional and social rest I tend to discuss together because they both deal with people. Emotional rest is the rest we experience when we feel the liberty to be just very real, raw, and authentic about what's going on with us mentally. A lot of us hold on to a bunch of emotional labor and that we don't feel that there are safe spaces to unload and to just be vulnerable. And so you have to determine who are those people in your life that you feel the ability to be real, raw, and authentic with. You know, it may be a therapist or a counselor or coach or a trusted friend or family member. You get to choose who your emotional rest people are, but we all need that. Having that feeling like we can never just be vulnerable and truthful about what's going on with us is in itself a stress. And then social rest are those people with whom we experience that with. So every relationship either is emotionally pulling from us or pouring back into us. If you think about it, most of the people who we spend most of our time with are the people we care about, our families, our friends. And so you're spending time with these people most, especially if they're like your kids and your spouse, they're pulling from your emotional energy. They need things from you. Then you have to think about who are the people in my life who don't really need anything from me. I just enjoy being around them. They're life-giving. They actually pour back into me. Now, your kids and your spouse can be both pulling and pouring, but there's an intentionality that has to happen there. Otherwise, those relationships can very easily become one-sided. You just have to be aware of kind of the dynamics of those relationships and if you're getting that social rest. Because unfortunately, many of us, when we get to a certain age, all of our attention in relationships is either with family members or career. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of a setting aside of adult friends because there's no time, it feels like, for adult friends. And so we have to see that there really is an importance in having those adult friends because often those are the people who are our life givers. They don't need anything from you. I saw a meme recently and it was like, this is what adult friendship is like. And it was somebody sending a message to another person. And they were like, five weeks from now, I would love to see you between the the hour of this and this so that we can hang out. And I was like, I relate to that so much. It's so hard. There's so much other stuff going on. But I do feel like when I'm around my friends, you know, and I think as you get older too, your core group gets smaller and smaller and, and for good reason. But 
it is so energizing and I, and I do feel that. And I actually scored the highest in social rest on the quiz. So I was like, okay, well, I feel like I'm doing something right here. Yeah. You know, that's the beauty of all of these types of rest. I think all of us have naturally understand our need for some of them. Even if we didn't have a term for what it was we were needing, we just recognize that I feel better. I do better. I perform better in these situations, when I allow these moments to be in my life. Yeah, it's interesting. And we talked a little bit about this, especially with physical rest, the difference between active and passive. I think on the surface, people might assume that social and physical rest means taking a break from hanging out with your friends or taking a break from a certain type of movement. But as you said, you know, it's actually doing these things with the right people, the right type of movement within the right context. And so Maybe the rest isn't necessarily the action, but is it more of the result then? That's a good way of looking at it because with each type of rest, there are active and passive forms if we really get down to the core of it. Because even with social, the passive form is isolation. However, usually it's introverts that benefit most from that, not extroverts. And so I find that being away from people typically isn't the one that people need to focus on. It's the actual healthy life-giving engagement is the one that most people are missing out on because it's easier, it seems like, for people to withdraw from others than it is to actually allow themselves to be filled back up. You know, and as we mentioned, the cessation activities do have benefit. There's a benefit in cessation activities with draining people, Mm -hmm. but that's like putting a Band-Aid or suturing up a cut. I've stopped the bleeding, but I haven't put anything back in to actually make you feel better. So there's that refilling that has to happen because that's actually where you get that restoration from. Got it. All right. So I got you a little off track, but we have creative and sensory left. So sensory rest requires us to take a look at the sensory inputs that are happening in our life. Most of us don't really think about what type of sensory environment we live and work and play in. And so, you know, just taking some time to think about what are the lights, sounds, smells, the sights, all the different things that are happening in where we spend our time. You know, if you're working at an office, are you near the elevator where bells are dinking? Are you hearing phones in the background? You know, if you're working from home, are the kids playing in the background? Are you hearing toys going off and music and all these different things? Because unfortunately, whether you're aware of it or not, you're subconsciously responding to the sensory inputs around you. When we become sensory overwhelmed, our responses, irritation, agitation, rage, and anger, we get on edge. And so if you find that you show up at work and you're okay, and somewhere in the middle of the day, you kind of flip, you know, the switch gets turned on, and all of a sudden you're just very agitated, it could very well be a sensory overload symptom that you're experiencing. Yeah, so this was actually the one that I scored the worst in, and it was kind of a light bulb moment for me because I, you know, reading your book and taking the quiz, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so me, and I hadn't really made that connection before. Like, I realized, like, I don't really like to watch TV loud, or I never like to have two screens. But you get into, I think, especially with the pandemic and maybe where you mentioned, you know, if you sit by the elevator at work, a lot of this stuff might be out of your control. So there are things that you can control. And then within the sensory world, there are things that you can't. So for this one in particular, what's your advice for people who feel that overload but can't necessarily change all of it? Yes, that's a great question because, you know, what I'm not recommending is you take some major vacations or sabbatical. I don't believe vacations or sabbaticals are an appropriate burnout prevention strategy. They are 
fun, but they're not a burnout prevention strategy. Really, all of these different types of rest that are needed should be things you can incorporate in the middle of your regular normal life without having to kind of recreate the wheel. So for someone who's experiencing that, for example, the person sitting by the elevator, sometimes what we have them do is actually bring earplugs to actually wear during a certain period of their day. So they're not going to wear it all eight hours of their or however long they're sitting at their desk. That's not realistic. And sensory deprivation does not have to be a long period of time. It just needs moments of reprieve from whatever the attack is. Mm -hmm. And so what I oftentimes will have them do is during their, let's say, lunch break, or maybe if they have a block of time where they know they don't have meetings, it's the time that they're going deep and doing whatever their work is without interruption to put earplugs in during that time. So during that maybe one or two hours, they have complete silence and they can just work in silence. Another way that I recommend getting sensory rest, let's say if you're someone who typically goes for an evening jog after work and you normally, you know, you put your audio book on your head or whatever it is you're going to listen to as you take off for those 30 minutes. Rather than doing that, just run in silence. Yeah, I did that when I lived in New York for about eight years and I would do all my runs without, you know, listening to anything because it was it just felt like so much chaos and noise all the time. And the one time I could get away from it was if I just went on my runs and I didn't have anything in my ears. What I find sometimes people who have a lot of auditory input, because they built up some resilience to some degree, they can tolerate a lot more noise. And what benefits them is actually the sensory deprivation, the visual sensory deprivation. And so like oftentimes with musicians, what I'll have them do is the same thing we did with kids back in kindergarten when they didn't want to go to sleep. You just say, close your eyes and put your head down on the desk, but actually have moments where they just take one of those little eye covers like you would use on a plane and just have 10 minutes of visual sensory deprivation because they are so attuned to sound, you know, those people who are engaged with a lot of auditory input, just that moment of visual sensory deprivation actually helps them to be able to calm their body. And then they produce at a higher level because it tunes the other aspect of them that's already part of their natural gifting. So, so many different examples of of how to use that within different platforms and and different situations. Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, so we have creative last. Yeah, creative is the final one. And we kind of mentioned it, but it's basically the rest you experience around beauty. And so there was a lot of studies that have been done regarding this effect that water has on a lot of people. I know some people will say, oh, going to the beach or the ocean, I just feel better. I don't know why, but something about being in that setting just does something inside of me. I feel revived, restored, energized. And what they're describing is sensory rest. They're describing that restoration that comes when we allow ourselves to appreciate beauty. And that can be natural beauty, you know, like ocean, mountains, trees, foresting is an aspect of that. Or it can be man-made beauty. It can be like music or dance or theater. I mean, any of those types of creativity that you allow to actually kind of awaken something inside of you to spark that innovative, creative juices. And I think what gets difficult for a lot of people with creative rest is because they think, oh, that's only for creatives. That's only for like those musicians she's talking about or, you know, artists or people like that. But the reality is creative energy, which is at the root of every one of these types of rest, is an evaluation of energy in, energy out. Creative energy is used every time we problem solve. Every time we have to be innovative or think outside of the box. And if you think about over the past, what, 
24 or so months when the pandemic hit, there was a lot of innovation and creativity that was required because everybody had to do things different from grocery shopping to figuring out how to go to a doctor because no doctor was going to see you unless you had a negative test and then you couldn't get a test. So there was all of this thinking outside of the box creativity that had to happen just to do normal everyday things. And so what we found is that with the rest quiz, there was a huge increase in creative rest deficits. And people could not understand why I'm working from home. I'm living the life. I've always dreamed of working from home, waking up, doing my work in my PJs and not having to leave my house. Why am I so exhausted? Because there were different rest deficits that hit that people had no clue even existed. And so they didn't have a frame of reference to how even to fix some of these problems. So are you keeping track of all of the results you get from the quiz and sort of noticing trends shifting and maybe connecting them to historical or social things that are happening? We are. We do a lot of kind of cross-referencing, um, working with a lot of different agencies from <laughs> from military agencies to universities to all sorts of different things right now. Um, it was really interesting during the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of racial unrest that kind of popped up during a season there. And that was during the time that sensory rest deficits shot through the roof. So there was a university in California that was doing some studies about rest being part of the healing process because, as I mentioned, when people get sensory rest deficits, the response is irritation, agitation, rage, and anger. And so kind of looking at how some of these things kind of parallel each other and the role that it can play when we more clearly understand how rest can actually be preventative. Yeah, that's super interesting. Have you seen, since you've really dove into this and written your book and and become a champion of rest, have you seen any improvements on like a larger level? Yeah, you know, it's been really interesting because when we think about well-being in general, in the past, the focus has more been on the traditional health aspect of it. Let's get people eating right, let's get people exercising, and let's get people sleeping, which are at the core foundation, I think, of health and wellness, definitely. But I think we completely dismissed the need for restorative activities. We lumped rest kind of over with sleep. And we've done people a disservice. This isn't just for corporations or it isn't just for athletes or it isn't just for one group that universally each one of us to be able to perform at our optimal areas in whatever it is that we do, there has to be a restorative process that's happening. Mm -hmm. It's identifying what does this look like in a tech company? Mm -hmm. What does this look like in a healthcare organization, in an educational organization, in the military? What does it look like in our specific body of people to experience restoration and restorative type processes? On the one hand, we talk about incorporating rest into our lifestyles, much like we do at Nike with exercise. So how do you see exercise and sport interacting with rest and restoration? Yeah, I definitely think exercising and sports does have a component of rest. I think particularly in the past, I would probably say in the past five years, I've seen 
kind of a much bigger push in the sports industry related to understanding that rest is needed. I oftentimes see, however, though, when speaking with athletes, that rest days are typically suggested as cessation days. It's like, this is a rest day, and the way it's communicated is this is a day to take a break from physical activity and to let your body heal and restore. I think there is a place for that. I think there's a place for cessation activities. But I think for most athletes, actually what would benefit them most is finding out how to restore what's been taxed the most during their workout. I'll try to give some quick examples. For someone who is doing a lot of long runs, and so their legs, their joints, their hips, their ankles, you know, all of these things are being physically taxed on these long, hard, pavement-pounding runs. A restorative, restful day or a day of restoration and kind of restorative processing may be swimming, where you're allowing the buoyancy of the water to relax the legs and, you know, maybe even using fins so that you even heighten the buoyancy some and focus more on the upper body. And so their upper body, which is not getting much exercise at all, can take a little bit of taxing on that rest day because it's not an area that's getting stressed. And you completely remove the weight off the legs to let them just have a moment of restoration. They're still working on things that would help their overall performance. They're still helping their oxygen capacity. They're still helping their ability to stay diligent with their workout. So it still helps them to stay kind of in that mindset of training mode But what you're training your legs to do is to heal on those rest days. And I think sometimes being able to understand kind of the mental, emotional makeup of an athlete helps you be able to tailor the restorative processes so that it works with them. It doesn't seem like a deterrent. That is actually something they want to do because they understand, okay, now that my legs have had a day to recover, I'm going to come out the next day and have more power. Because in that moment of recovery, those muscles, those joints, all of it got strengthened in those processes. So do you see any downsides with training, maybe particularly when it comes to the competitive or the goal-oriented nature of sport? You mentioned your husband, people who are very committed to these really intense training programs, or maybe people who just compulsively exercise, like they'd maybe go a little too intense too many days of the week. When does it begin to endanger the seven types of rest? Well, I think it becomes a problem when you start noticing that you are having, that it's negatively affecting your life. Like if you're someone who you're noticing a lot of physical injuries related to whatever exercise or sport that you're doing, I mean, greater than what would be considered a normal risk. And so, you know, you have to be aware of that. But keep in mind, there are preventative things you can do to protect against that. That's where this rest comes into play. It's those preventative things to help protect against that. And so I think that's one of the things that you have to stay on top of is if I don't allow these times of being filled back up and restored and re-energized, then I'm putting myself at risk for not being able to do what it is I actually love, that I'm actually putting myself at risk for not being able to complete that that race that's coming up or to compete in whatever it is that you're trying to compete in, and that those moments of rest aren't actually deterring from your goals, but actually helping you to make sure that you get a chance to 
experience, whatever that is that you're going after. Because I feel like when I'm working with athletes, that's part of the battle sometimes that we have because they have trained themselves to shut down that communication between their body and their actual physical needs. Yeah, it's such an important distinction, I feel like, to be able to understand the difference there of, of when to push and when to sort of step back. You know, another thing that you talked about in your book that I thought was really interesting and I was sort of craving a little bit more from it, so I'm hoping we can talk a little more about it here, is the difference between exercising for weight loss and exercising for body peace. So can you share more about what you mean by that? Yeah, I always call it when you're trying to just click off the 10,000 on your, you know, on your Garmin or your Fitbit or whatever it is you have uh, versus you're just out there trying to get your body moving. Because I, I think, especially when we're talking about wellness, there's different types of exercise. You know, our body needs physical movement and it needs physical movement whether you're trying to lose weight or not. So that doesn't necessarily have to reach a peak heart rate or has to get to a certain level of steps per minute or miles per hour. That can be at whatever pace feels comfortable to you. However, when you're trying to lose weight, it's helpful to get your heart rate up to a certain level. It's helpful to be able to burn calories. And you're going to burn more calories the, the more effort you put into it, the higher intensity that you use, whether you are lifting weights with it or not, or you know whether you are doing some extra things that actually help you burn more calories in those moments. And so whenever a patient comes to me and they say, I'm exercising, but I'm not losing any weight, I always ask them, what kind of exercise are you doing? And how many calories are eating? Because those two kind of go hand in hand. I don't believe you can exercise your way into smaller sizes, you're going to kill yourself in the process of doing that. There has to be a balance of calories in, calories out to some degree. Got it. And then the idea of body peace, what do you mean by that? Yeah, body peace to me is when you feel good in your body and it's you're not having this kind of consistent discomfort. When someone has body peace, their body is not fighting back against them anymore. They can do the physical activity and after the physical activity, they go back to a place of homeostasis. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel after a 5K. I do a 5K. There's nothing after a 5K that I feel. My husband can go out and do a 10-mile run and come back and be back in body peace. He doesn't feel anything because that's just... That's a short run in his book. That's not something he even thinks twice about. So that level of body peace is different for each person, depending on their own level of activity and their own athletic abilities. But I think it's important to understand that there's times you're going to push your body beyond body peace because you're trying to get it to grow and to strengthen and to build. But you should also have those times when you're doing activities where you feel it come back to that baseline. Yeah, I'm ready for some body peace <laughs> soon. <laughs> I hope to get back. Hard there to get soon. if you're in a training module. Yeah, I will admit if you're in if you're in the middle of training, don't expect necessarily to feel body peace because usually if someone's training, they're trying to get better. Mm -hmm. What you're trying to PR, whatever, <laughs> whatever it was before, you want better. You want quicker times, faster paces, whatever it is. But during those breaks in between, before you start the next training module there should be some moments of body peace where you just feel good in your body doing whatever activity you like to do and feel like it comes back to that good place. Yeah, once again, there's a balance there. I'm guessing when you talk to your patients or your audiences, you try to highlight strategies that are they're targeted, they're incremental, they're actionable, they're realistic. But a lot of what we're talking about, and we've acknowledged this, is, you know, they're lifestyle changes. They're things that don't really work in small doses. So I'm curious 
What do you say to people who push back and say, these are really great ideas. There's just no way I have time to implement even half of this. Because I think even the concept of there being seven types of rest and maybe having a to-do list associated with each of them might just be so overwhelming for people to even consider trying any of them. I love that question because that is exactly what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to try to eat the elephant. Mm -hmm. That's not healthy. I want you to actually focus in on the one or two that are actually the most specific for you. I think that's where the whole concept at restquiz.com came from and that helping people actually see, you know, this is the one I have the highest level of rest deficit in. And I always tell people, pick the one, maybe two at the most, that you have your highest level of rest deficit. And then focus your attention on combining a restorative practice with something you already do. Because like I said, it's not about a vacation. It's not about carving out some big block of time to do rest things. That's just not realistic. That's not realistic in my life. It has to be matched up with something I am already doing. And by pairing it with a habit I already have, then it more easily becomes a restorative habit because I'm not having to create space for it. I'm just joining it with a habit that's already part of my day. Well, that feels very approachable. And I think we'll definitely include the link to that quiz in the show notes so people can take that. I think it takes about 10 minutes to get through. And it was definitely, it was fun for me to take. It was fun to see the results. And I think I'm a little bit more aware about what I might need to focus on. And I know I've asked you to provide suggestions for actions that people can take, like things individuals can actually control to increase their own rest levels. And this is a lot of what you do in your book as well. It's really helpful. Do you think though our collective lack of rest is an individual problem or is it more of a systemic or cultural problem? I definitely believe it's a cultural problem. I think for the longest time, rest has been looked at the thing lazy people do. It's like, and honestly, that's how I looked at it for the longest time. But the reality is when we look at it as a culture in that way, we start rest shaming people. It's like, oh, you need rest and I don't. And the reality is we all need it. It's just some of us are omitting it and living the effects of having omitted it, either with bad attitudes or excess injuries and accidents or bad relationships. We're living with the evidence of how our unrested lives are toxic, but because we have a culture that for a long time has said that rest was unnecessary, we're having to kind of reframe how our culture looks at rest and actually put the value back in it. That is actually why I titled the book Sacred Rest. When something's sacred, you see value in it. You put an importance upon it. So what can we do then as individuals to try to shift the culture around rest? Oh, I love that question. (laughs) I think you have to be an advocate. You have to be someone who's an advocate for it. You know, I, I work with a lot of parent groups lately who bring this question up because we have a lot of teens that are burning the candle at both ends in high school. And so they're learning, even as athletes, I have to do this even with my sons. One of my sons for, or actually both of them, during their ninth grade year, they wanted to try all the sports. So they were football, basketball, soccer, and track. And it's like, okay, I'm going to let them, you know, fill this out, get an idea for what sport is their sport, what they excel in. But I watched them during this time burn out because as I'm looking at them going through this, it's just not feasible to 
do all the things. And that's what a lot of us try to do in our day-to-day life. And so uh, it took a while for me to see that I need to interject here and be an example so that they can understand that it's okay to pick and choose, to make a decision, to back off of some things that are overwhelming your plate. I think we have to continually be advocates for this need for rest and and be brave because it it takes a brave, bold person to stand up in a culture that says, hey, work, productivity, that's all that you need to care about. And to say, you know what, for me to be my most productive, creative, effective, innovative self means that I'm going to take a break today, means that I'm going to stop for a moment, means that I'm going to do a restorative activity. That comes in the face of what culture has always said. So you end up being a forerunner that sets kind of a new paradigm on what it can look like to excel. Yeah, that's so important. I think a lot of people fall into that trap. I know I certainly did and still do in some ways, and I used to wear it as a badge of honor. You know, how much can I take on and how little can I rest? Much less so, though, since I've been hosting this show and then I've had the opportunity to talk with people like you who really make a strong case for boundaries for rest and for true self-care, not the way that we talk lightly about self-care. And so just want to thank you a ton for your time today. I love that you're prescribing rest to your patients and exploring holistic ways, I think, to achieve health and happiness and high performance in and out of the gym. I hope this conversation has contributed to your rest. And if not, that maybe you can at least get one of your famous meditative prayer walks in after. (laughs) Yes, those are always helpful for me. But this has definitely been a joy to chat with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Dalton Smith. I think Dr. Dalton Smith is right. An unrested life can be toxic. And it's an easy trap for many of us to fall into, either not stopping at all and burning the candle at both ends, or thinking that sleep and vacations are the only cessation, the only rest we need. Two things that I found super helpful. First, the quiz, which you can find at restquiz.com. It's really helped me focus in on and target energy drains in my life. And second, you don't need these big, unrealistic solutions to fix those drains. Like she said, the key is combining a restorative practice with something you already do. And in that spirit, we hope this podcast has been creative rest for you. On our next episode, we chat with Nike trainer and yoga instructor Brandon Collinsworth about making the connection between yoga, sports performance, and self-love. This has been Trained. Talk to you soon. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trained, help us spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast. That way, we can keep making great episodes for you to listen to. And it helps other people find us, too. If you've got a question for me or my guests or a topic you'd like to see covered, email me at trained at nike.com, and I'll see what I can do. Thanks for listening to Trained. Just a reminder... Always talk with your doctor before starting any training or nutrition program. The information we provide isn't a substitute for any medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and the individual opinions expressed here are just that, opinions.